Welcome to the Brave Daily Podcast. At Brave Daily, we offer Logos Bible software coaching, Christian book reviews, and relevant interviews to reflect on life as a believer to help keep us all growing. For more information, head to our website at bravedaily.com. Enjoy the show. Brave Daily, it is so good to be with you today. I've got a special guest. I am excited. I reached out to uh, Dr. Pasquello several weeks ago to schedule this interview. I have been reading his book uh, called The Beauty of Preaching, and it has been phenomenal. And uh, Dr. Pasquello, he's the Methodist Chair of Divinity, the Director of Robert Smith Jr. Preaching Institute. He's also the Director of Doctorate of Ministry of Beeson Divinity School. And so someone who is a preacher, it is just an honor to sit here with someone like you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm happy to be with you. And so, well, did, did, you, did you have a good Thanksgiving? We did. Yes, we did. And, you know, everybody has kind of their own favorite Thanksgiving uh, traditions. What's your, what's your favorite Thanksgiving food? And then do you all have anything in your family that makes Thanksgiving stand out? Oh, well, um, I, I know this is going to sound boring, but I love turkey. Yep. And I look forward to turkey. And we had good turkey. Yes. <laughs> And, you know, that's still very special to me, it goes back to my childhood, and, uh, and I really enjoyed that. We shared our dinner with some friends, uh, some neighbors, um, and it was a really good time. I think for me, Thanksgiving is uh, uh, low-key, uh, but being with either family or friends and telling stories that enable us to remember how good God has been to us. Mm -hmm. And um, I can't think of a better way to spend Thanksgiving. Um, and yeah, so that I think oh, that's, that's great. About it. Yeah. Now you have you have quite a uh, quite a, a great record when it comes to preaching and the history of preaching and your work with preaching. For those of of in our audience who might not be familiar with you and your work, could you give a brief mm -hmm. overview of your career, where you've been? I said a few things at the beginning, but uh, a little bit more just about you uh, so our audience can have uh, some background. Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, I was called into pastoral ministry when I was serving as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. And I served for five years on active duty in the Marines, uh, reached a fork in the road where I had to make a decision if I was gonna stay for the long haul or move on to something else. And at that point, uh, it was pretty clear to me what I was to do. So I went back to school and I did a Master of Divinity at Duke Divinity School in uh, Durham, North Carolina, and was ordained in the United Methodist Church. And I served as a pastor for 18 years in North Carolina. Um, and about, a, oh, I'd say about a dozen years in, I sensed God calling me to go deeper into what I was doing as a pastor and, a, and especially as a preacher. And I had thought about doing doctor work uh, ever since I graduated with my MDiv, and I just wasn't sure what I, what I wanted to do, which is very typical. You know, Monday, New Testament, Wednesday, Old Testament, Friday, church history, you know, Sunday, theology. And then finally it came clear to me, preaching draws together all of the other disciplines, and they come together in the person and the work of the preacher. So I started thinking, how can I learn more about that? Well, that led me to doing a PhD in the history of Christianity with a focus on the history of preaching and studying those preachers that we hear about 
that we often hear about, but we often hear about them as great theologians or biblical scholars, those who write commentaries on scripture, like John Calvin, for example, and Augustine or Martin Luther, you know. But what I learned about these folks is they were really good, good preachers. And it was in preaching where their knowledge of doctrine and scripture and the Christian life came together. And that's what I zeroed in on in my PhD. So I guess you could say I know a little bit about a lot of things, and, um, which I would thoroughly enjoy. And, and that's what I do. Um, and so the book came out of uh, a lot of years of reflecting on uh, the history of preaching. Oh, that's fantastic. And the book we're going to talk about today is The Beauty of Preaching, God's Glory in Christian Proclamation. And I've been reading it over the last several weeks. Um, and I didn't get a, for those listening, I didn't get a advanced copy or an author a review copy. I bought this book because I was so interested when I saw the title. This book, uh, Doctor, thank you so much for writing a book, as I was telling you before we got going. That's not another how-to book. I've been reading uh, preaching books. I've been a preacher full-time vocationally for 17 years. I have enough books on exposition, exegetical principles, hermeneutics. I love these sorts of books that uh, go a little bit deeper, that talk about biblical theology, historical theology, and what you do so well in this book, for, for people who might be interested in reading it, is you draw from a broad Christian, a rich Christian history to develop really what it means to, uh, to be a, a preacher. So um, one of my favorite quotes from your book is this, although scripture matters greatly in preaching, knowing and loving God matter even more. Scripture remains secondary as a gift means of grace that is used with right intention and the inspiration of love received from God. Faithfulness in biblical preaching requires forming preachers in the wisdom, language, idiom, and movement of scripture that points beyond itself to Christ. That is a particular form of learning that draws into a conversation of the heart from delighting in created things, including words, to delighting in the beauty of Christ and desiring what God wills to make the church as a word to the world. That is a lot to unpack, but everyone who's listening, there are this I've underlined a lot in this book, but let's start this idea of beauty. Yeah. What is, when we talk about the beauty of Christ or the beauty of God, what is beauty? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, let me, let me say how, what sparked my interest. It was studying Augustine. And uh, when I was in divinity school and Augustine writes about the beauty of God everywhere. And when he writes about preaching, he says, preaching has three primary purposes. The first is to teach, and the second is to delight, and the third is to persuade or move. Well, lots of preaching teaches, this is what you need to do, uh, to know, and, and preaching then will tell you what you need to do and try to motivate you or move you to do it. But what we need in our time, I believe, is preaching that is delightful. And what delights is not just the preacher or the way the preacher talks, but the beauty of God, which gives us great pleasure and enjoyment. Mm -hmm. And it's the splendor of God that shines forth through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So God's beauty comes to us in a particular form. Beauty always has a form. It has a shape. And, and at its very fullness, it's the form of the person of Christ. God's glory 
is refracted and reveals in and through him. And he's not only the truth, though he is, and he's not only goodness, he is, but he's beautiful. And so he's attractive. He's compelling. Think of all the people in the Gospels that are drawn to Jesus. What is it about him that caught their attention, that drew them to him in ways that were just irresistible? Okay? And, and I wanted to think about preaching in those terms, the beauty of God as it shines forth through the words of Scripture as they are interpreted and spoken by preachers. Oh, that's great. You, you've done such a good job of, you know, either in my mind, modern preaching always typically goes kind of in two ways. One, it's a gospel of sin management, as Dallas Willard calls it. Yeah. Or it's, it's, the, it's a gospel of pop psychology and self-motivation. And uh, you, you, I think in your book, you called it uh, therapeutic deism. Um, mm -hmm. And so this idea of, of the beauty of Christ, I mean, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. How do we as preachers kind of get there? Because that may be new for some of our audience where they've only really, you know, a lot of the big names in preaching, not all of them, but a lot of the, the guys who have the platforms or the girls who have the platforms, it's really that application uh, driven preaching. Well, how do we make that internal change to where we become almost enraptured with the beauty of Christ? Oh, you just said it. Um, I think it, what it requires is falling in love with God mm. and attentiveness to God. Um, a, a subplot that runs through the entire book is what I would call a spirituality of preaching. Mm -hmm. That, um, well, let's, let's, let's draw an analogy. If you go to an art museum um, and, you, and you're introduced some of, to some of the most magnificent art that we have, if you're not accustomed to, to looking at it and paying attention to it, you really don't know how to appreciate the depth of its beauty. So you need to be formed to see in a certain way. Well, preachers need to be formed to see and hear the word of God incarnate in Jesus Christ in a particular way. And that way is, is one of love. And so the more deeply we love him, the more truly we know him. And it's out of that long-term transformation, which happens in and through our work as preachers, mm -hmm. that we fall more deeply in love with God. And we're just taken up, as you said, enraptured by the beauty of his just abundant and self-giving love in Christ. Mm. The second thing, is we have to let go and let God be God. And I'll think about it like this, and I wrote about it th this way in the book. God is just blessedly useless, right? And, and what you said a few minutes ago, kind of typical popular ways of preaching, cash in on the utility of God. Mm -hmm. We'll give you five principles that will work in your life. Therefore, the church is still worth having around, even though not a whole lot of people want to go anymore or we'll uh, tell you how you can make this happen. And, and you know, we promise this, this will happen for you. And that way, you know, you'll come back next week, even though, you know, your friends don't go to church. Um, why not just put it out there and say, you know, our God is useless because who would really be willing to give their lives up for a useful God. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't. 
You know, who would willingly lay down their life and suffer and die for a God who's merely useful, but a beautiful God, a glorious God, a magnificent God, a God who's, who just his, shows forth his splendor. That's a God who's truly worthy of all we are and have. Mm-hmm. And so really the beauty of preaching, of course, is a way of saying this is an act of worship. And in worship, we're out of control because we give ourselves up to God freely and gladly. Now, can you imagine preaching out of that mode, that way of being, how liberating it is instead of kind of, you know, trying to work what I would call the mechanics of preaching? No, I, I think so. I think it, it, to me, it reminds me of so often, you know, it's the, the whole garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's the idea of idols where I become the the biggest player in the room and really what you're advocating for is that god becomes bigger than us which at the end of the day it's so liberating because that's where that's where icons of god we're created in the in the image of god and so that's where we find our freedom and fulfillment and it's as preachers we're exuberating uh that and and that's all found in 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 the jesus it's fantastic Yes, it is. Yeah, because um, the fullness of salvation is that we are restored to the divine image in Christ. That's our hope of glory. And it is the splendor and glory of God in him that as it dwells within us shows forth in the beauty of the Christian life and how we think and how we feel and how we speak and how we act. So, you know, one of the things I emphasize throughout the book is that the beauty of preaching will produce the beauty of the church, a church that's attractive and compelling, uh, not a brand, uh, not a corporation. You know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't market. It simply is what it is, blessedly useless and yet, you know, beautified by the Holy Spirit who, who fills us to abundance with the love of God in Christ. Mm, that'll preach. That's that's just that's good stuff. Well, in your book, you work you help readers really have a, a sense of the history of preaching, and you use several different contexts and categories. You you work through Mark's Gospel, uh, a lot of Augustine, Luther, Wesley do a great job, uh, especially for someone who's not kind of familiar with maybe church history and Wesley and Luther. What made you choose those contexts to? kind of pull this thread of beauty through and uh you know you you've got a wealth of knowledge on the history of preaching so what what made it stand out about these characters uh that that brought this book together well that's a great question and i have to tell you uh i struggled for a a good while deciding who was going to be in and who i had to leave out and in one place i think i uh, in a footnote i say you know there's a any number of other really significant figures in the history of the church that I could have included, but I didn't just because of the, you know, the limitations of the length of the book. Augustine, of course, if you're going to talk about beauty in the Western church, you begin with Augustine. Um, you know, if, if, if folks, your listeners are familiar with his confessions, it's after he's converted that he's so overwhelmed by God who had pursued him for years uh, out of his depths of his love. And he says, uh, you know, late have I loved thee, beauty, ever ancient, ever new. So I thought about that, you know, I've, I've actually for a number of years. And I, and I thought, wow, God is beauty. He's ever ancient and yet ever new. Mm. And so 
that beauty is revealed to us too, if we're willing to pay attention to it, if we can open our eyes, you know, and really turn our attention, our gaze to him. So Augustine really was a sort of a, a slam dunk, including him, because he's just so good and so rich and offers so much, and he's well known. Um, I chose Wesley because I'm a Wesleyan, and for Wesley, the Christian life is best expressed in the beauty of holiness. And that's something that, you know, Wesleyans love to talk about, but we tend to think of holiness, but we don't always talk about its beauty. And so I, I built a chapter around him uh, to point to the beauty of holiness and kind, the kind of preaching that Wesley did, uh, which was what I call it simple beauty. And, and that's because, as you know, uh, Wesley preached to a whole diversity of audiences, including open-air field preaching, like George Whitfield, where he talked to thousands of just common, you know, laborers, poor folks, uh, people who weren't well-educated. You know, the way he said it is that it's plain truth for plain people. And yet there's a simple elegance and beauty about the way he names Christ and preaches the gospel and it produces holy lives. So I wanted to bring that out. Martin Luther says a lot about beauty, particularly in his commentaries on the Psalms. And the language there is just so rich. He follows Augustine, uh, who, uh, who, who left us six volumes of commentary on the Psalms. And, and for Luther, he'll talk about the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ that the beauty of, of Christ is revealed in his suffering on a cross. I call it a strange beauty. And it is a strange beauty, you know, and yet it's a, it's a paradox in that it's beauty revealed and yet hidden in the suffering of our Lord all the way to death on a cross. And at the same time, he's the one who's exalted and, and to the right hand of the Father, and he will reign forever. And so uh, Luther was a good one. He left us such good things. And the uh, last part of the chapter on Luther, I draw from his commentary on the Magnificat, where Mary sings her praise when the angel appears to her, you know, and tells her that she's the one who's going to bear the child. And, uh, and, and, and Mary just sings this beautiful hymn of praise we call the Magnificat. And she, in her own way, is a wonderful example for preachers, because Preaching, Luther says, preaching is a kind of singing. It's a song, and it's the song of Christ, and it resounds with the glory of God. Okay, and then um, the other chapters are from Scripture. Uh, Isaiah fifty-two: How beautiful are the feet of those on the on the mountains who who come and proclaim, you know, good news. Your God reigns. Well, for years I asked myself, why are their feet beautiful? What is it about a preacher's feet that are beautiful? That's a good question, isn't it? What was Isaiah the prophet trying to say? Well, they just skip and run with just filled with boundless energy and joy and delight because they're delivering this grand message to Israel, a captive exiled people. Look, your God is coming to set you free. What a beautiful message, right? What a beautiful thing to see. Well, that's us. And St. Paul in Romans 10, he quotes Isaiah. He alludes to it. He echoes it when he says, how will they hear 
without a preacher, you know, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, you know, how beautiful are the feet. And then I have a chapter on, um, from Mark's four, uh, Mark 14. And it's a familiar story and yet it gets overlooked. And it's a story of an unnamed woman who comes to a home where Jesus has gone to share a meal with a leper named Simon. And he and the disciples are there and they're, are, they're sitting around the dinner table. And this woman just barges in, uninvited, unannounced. And she has this uh, flask filled with expensive ointment. Mark estimates it's about a year's worth of wages. And she anoints Jesus with it. And the disciples get all upset because they think it's this great waste of money. And they say, why are you letting her do that? And he says, stop, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. And so I asked myself, what was so beautiful about that? And how might her beauty and her beautiful thing be a clue to how we understand preaching and the message of the gospel? And so you see these threads, I think, come together in the book around the beauty of God made known in Christ, which is echoed in the beauty of scripture, sounded forth in the beauty of preaching. Wow. That's, that's wonderful and intense. Um, throughout your book, it resonated with me uh, that I want to be a part of a community of faith where the Trinitarian God gets the spotlight. Uh, yes. that, that was something as I read it that just resonated with me. You said such preachers and communities may indeed go unnoticed in a church that uh, church that glorifies a church uh, culture that glorifies in the powerful, the impressive, the trendy, and the fashionable. How can pastors and preachers help influence the culture of their church? To where they really get a vision of this because there is so much pressure for the local church pastor uh, to be either trendy or that there's also pressure that preaching doesn't work, it's not valuable, let's do other things. Um, how, how can we as preachers help influence the culture of our churches? Well, let me go back to what I said earlier. Um, by allowing uh, the Word of God to be blessedly useless, mm. and showing forth its beauty on a weekly basis, and over time, uh, assuming the posture of humility of a servant and one who points away from him or herself to, and calls uh, their people to behold your God who is now here with us in the person of Jesus Christ and trust that the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts and illumine their minds that they will truly uh, believe the message of the gospel and be drawn more fully and deeply into Christ. It doesn't come overnight. It doesn't come in a, in a sermon series. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come with a program that's short term. Uh, it comes by faithfulness over a long period of time, which is why preachers who work in that manner are often overlooked. They're not understood. They're dismissed as being failures or not successful enough. They're not showy enough. They're not entertaining enough. And yet when, we, when, we, when it's all said and done, we, it may be revealed to us that they have been the ones who are most faithful mm -hmm. and that God is most pleased 
with what he's seen and heard in them, which is his own beauty in the person of his son. Well, that, that is absolutely encouraging and fantastic. Um, I'm going to put links uh, at the in the description of all this for people who want to go buy this book. I wholeheartedly endorse it. I've got some more questions. I love, I'm a preacher. I love talking about just the act of preaching in itself. Um, and so it's a broad question, but how do you prepare for a sermon personally? If you're preaching this Sunday, what does the week, weekly process look like for you? Oh, that's a good question. I am preaching this Sunday. Um, well, I set aside, I have a habit, I call it a habit, and when I teach preaching, uh, I encourage my students to form a habit that will, a discipline that will sustain them for the course of a lifetime in ministry. Um, and for me, it's in the morning, uh, first thing, and I set aside time to read, to think, to pray, to reflect, to meditate, and I take my time, I'm not in a hurry. Um, and I'm not looking for something on day one where it's all wrapped up and I think I have it all figured out. And in fact, when I think I have it all figured out, I tend to, I tend to be suspicious <laughs> that there's something more going on that I, if I'm more patient, God will reveal to me. So I take my time and I live with the text. I study, I use what I was taught in divinity school for which I'm very thankful, but I also enter into it in a prayerful personal way. Uh, not just an academic way. And I don't think that they're opposed to each other, but they have to work together. So the historical academic work is a means to the larger end, which is to hear the living word of God that comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ. And it's, that's what I'm really seeking and looking for and want to open and receptive uh, uh, to, to come to me in the course of the week. And so my primary concern is to arrive at a central focus for the sermon. Mm -hmm. I tend to believe it's good to do one thing and do one thing well, and, and that's sufficient for a sermon. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the sermon is like uh, the hub of a wheel. The parts of the sermon go out from it, and they always return to it. Uh, and there, that gives the sermon coherence. It makes it what I would call followable. Um, I think most important is always to be mindful that first and foremost, the sermon is about God before it's about us. Mm. And I think that's the greatest struggle for preachers today because we live in an environment in the West and in America where there has been this great reversal in which there's been a turn to the self and where we are the center of reality and the center of all things. And so we need to be drawn out of ourselves and to look away from ourselves. And I find that to be the great struggle working through the week towards a sermon is that my, in my own life to be, uh, to let the spirit draw me out of myself, to be able to receive the word of God that is greater than me and greater than the church so that we really have something worth saying, worth hearing and worth believing instead of just more, of the same. Uh, I, I write, I still write my sermons out and I shoot to do that typically by Thursday morning. And uh, I made a deal with myself a long time ago that if I was going to use a manuscript, I don't always, sometimes I'll just use an outline, but I made a deal that if I use a manuscript, I will know it well enough that I can preach the sermon and people won't know I'm using the manuscript. 
So I practice, 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 practice. I don't try to memorize anything, but I try to internalize the sermon. So I speak it out of myself and I feel like it flows out of me freely. I don't fret over getting every word just right, but I just want to communicate the gist of the sermon, get the focus out there and call folks to respond in a way that it's appropriate to the word we have heard from God. I'm not interested in takeaways. I'm not interested in here's five things, take home and put it on the refrigerator and remember to do it this week. I want them to see God. And I trust that if they see God, in the sermon, and they hear God's voice in the sermon, the Holy Spirit will prompt them and move them and guide them to act in a way that is fitting for what we've done. Oh, that, that's so, so helpful. That There's a phrase I heard, I forget where I've heard it from, but several years ago, that says, true preaching always uh, addresses God in his glory long before it ever uh, addresses man in his need. Yeah. Um, and so what role... With that in mind, what role does application play in a sermon? And, you know, what do we do with that? Yeah. Well, I think application uh, sometimes is mis uh, misconstrued or uh, we, we, ex we expect it to work in a particular way in which we take hold of things and make it happen, which is why I don't like to use the word application. It makes it sound as if preaching is simply a matter of either preacher have given you this information. Now, I want you to take it and do something with it. Um, and that assumes essentially, that's a very modern way of understanding preaching. Uh, and that's why you what you quoted earlier about the Bible and how I, I wrote in the book that the Bible is, prime, is not about itself. It's about God. And, and, and a lot of modern preaching is essentially what I would call biblical download. And today I'm going to tell you all about this text, and I'm going to tell you all kinds of historical and grammatical and cultural things about it. And I'm going to tell you what this Greek word means or this Hebrew word means and on and on and on and on and on. And that's impressive. And, and I think all of that belongs in the background. Mm -hmm. Okay, That's a step along the way. And I, fully and wholeheartedly endorse doing that and do it myself. But that's not preaching. Preaching speaks out of the text, not about the text. Or think of it this way. Is preaching, is the sermon a wall or a window? Right? Now, if you ask people to look at a wall, that's all they see. But if you ask them to look through a window, it opens up to a much, much larger world. And that's what scripture is. The grand narrative of Genesis to Revelation, which has its center in Jesus Christ. And the sermon says, come and find your true life in this story. Mm. Right? And just get accustomed to the landscape. Get to know some of the people. Mm. And find out what's going on here. And, and acknowledge and recognize with gratitude that God has made you part of this grand story and what he intends to do with a whole creation and and then kind of kind of get a sense of how life goes in this story and then adjust accordingly we call that repentance right you change your mind and change your ways and the holy spirit will give you all the grace you need to do that 
right? That's, that's preaching, you know? And I learned that from Augustine because that's what he did in his sermons. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Well, I've noticed uh, good preachers are readers. You're obviously a reader. What books are you currently reading? And, or, or maybe have there been any over in the last year that you've read that have just said, this is really helpful for preachers? Oh, my. Boy, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I don't read a whole lot of preaching books. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back to how you started our conversation. We have been overwhelmed by how-to books. Um, and, it, and there's a certain amount of benefit in those kind of books. And there are times when um, we need help in the basic skills of preaching a sermon, delivering a sermon, preparing a sermon. So we don't want to dismiss those. But I tend to read books that go bigger than that mm -hmm. and frame what I call the mechanics of preaching, the work of preaching. I tend to read books that are more formative in their, you know, in their way and their wisdom and their purpose. Because what I've sensed now, I've been preaching for my goodness, more than 35 years, is that I'm still being formed for this work and by this work. And God's not finished with me as a person as well as a preacher. So I tend to read books that, that call attention to the formative nature of scripture uh, and uh, theology. Uh, I love to study, obviously, figures in church history, not to go back into the past, because we can't do that, but to learn from the past to help us go forward, to learn from the wisdom of the past to help us go forward. Um, well, let me give you an example. I wrote a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer in preaching. It was life-changing for me. I immersed myself in Bonhoeffer's life and work for about five or six years. And I have to tell you, when I finished, I had changed my mind about a whole lot of things. You know, by looking at, looking at scripture, looking at the world, thinking about preaching uh, with Bonhoeffer and following Bonhoeffer and his wisdom, you know? And I think that's what preachers need to do. Mm -hmm. uh, instead of thinking just short-term, well, what's the takeaway in this I, I can use? It's more a matter of how will this stretch me? How will it deepen my knowledge and understanding? How will it expand my vision so I think bigger and larger? And I, and I you know, I can see things more the way God does. Um, and I think each of us finds particular books that help us to do that. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I'm currently reading Bonhoeffer's dissertation, and I need the oh. uh, power of the Holy Spirit to get me through it. I know yeah. his other works are a little bit uh, uh, more interesting. His his dissertation is pretty thick. It's it's that, uh, uh, Communion of Saints, Communion yeah. of Saints. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> well, bless you in reading that. It's worth it's worth the time and effort, uh, but you got to work your way through it. Yeah, I do. I do. Well, you know, I also, I think my, my last question I have, you've studied the history of preaching and the history of the church, and you've been able to see trends and issues that come and go for preachers, preaching churches. Looking forward, what, what do you think uh, the challenges are going to be for preaching preachers, the local church? Is it what we've always been going through, or do you think things are going to be different, new challenges? 
I think they're already different. I think if, if you, if you live in the United States, it depends upon the region of the country. I moved here, uh, Birmingham, Alabama from Southern California. Uh, the, the church culture there is very different than it is here. Here we, we, we're here in the deep South and in the Bible belt. Southern California is essentially a pagan culture mm -hmm. where you're surrounded by people who may not believe in God at all, or they may believe in many gods. I think that's where we're heading. I think that the gap between the church and the culture is only going to grow larger, and it doesn't matter where we live in the United States. It's going to catch up to all of us. And I think the challenge is going to be is that our ministry more and more is going to be with people who are new to the Christian faith, don't know anything about it, and we're going to have to, we can't assume that they have been raised in the church and they know what we're talking about which means that it's going to put a lot of emphasis on the credibility of the preacher. We're going to have to be trustworthy as well as thoughtful and knowledgeable and pastoral attuned to the particular needs and sensitivities that they bring to the church that may be very different than what we're accustomed to. I mean, I think it's going to, you know, and so, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book about the beauty of preaching. My hope is that it would encourage preachers that to show the beauty of the Christian faith and the beauty of the gospel. We especially know that younger adults, millennials, love to talk about beauty. They're really caught up in art, and they, that resonates with them deeply. Um, well, we have a beautiful God. Why, why shouldn't we? share that with them. But I think it's, it's the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, uh, those folks, if we're going to reach them, we need to re rethink really who we are and how, we, how we're going to preach in a way that we may not have experienced in the past. I also think it's going to be incredibly exciting and That's filled with opportunity. <laughs> no, no I, I agree. Well, Brave Daily, I want to encourage you to, to buy this book. Uh, I, I wholeheartedly endorse it and recommend it. And like we were saying, this is a book for those who want to go deeper. It's formative. It, it's not just a how-to. It's, it's formative. And uh, as, as Mike has done so well, it's about the heart and falling in love with God and seeing the beauty of Christ. Uh, Mike, thank you so, so much for sitting down uh, with us today. It's been an absolute privilege. Oh, it's been my privilege too. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you. And Brave Daily, as always, uh, go to our website, bravedaily.com. If you need help with Logos Bible software, uh, if you need to reach out to any of us, uh, we'll be happy to do so. And uh, until next time, God bless.